Welcome back to In the Queue, film conversations with Andrew and Phil. I am your co-host, Andrew, and I have seen this film so many times in my life, but this was the first time I ever saw it in the proper aspect ratio (laughs) and not as a bootlegged copy that my aunt sent me when I was a kid on VHS. This is Phil, your other co-host, and I, too, insisted that me and today's guests watch this film in the proper aspect ratio. So we paid the extra dollar on iTunes to watch the HD version of this film, and I think that it definitely added to the experience. (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful. Well, the film that is in question, in case you folks are wondering, is Harry and the Hendersons, a 1987 family comedy uh, directed by William Deere, mm. starring the talented and much lauded in recent years, John Lithgow. Yeah. Uh, lauded for very different things, uh, but lauded nevertheless. We have a guest on the show. It is our returning champion, Emily. She's here. Uh, say hi to everybody, Emily. Hello, everybody. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure that everybody is saying hello right back, right now, in this moment. So magical. So magical. <laughs> so uh, before we talk to, about the film itself, uh, I want to tell you how to find us on the web. You can find us at our website, which is www.in-the-q, that's the letter Q, dot com. There you can find all of our episodes posted in blog format. And you can leave us comments about the show itself, any suggestions you may have or comments that you have about the show. Or you can also leave us a suggestion on that web page uh, in the comments section. And we will have you on the show like Emily is today to discuss the film that you have suggested. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So yeah. get to it. Uh, Another way that you can do that is to go to our Facebook page, which is found on Facebook, (laughs) of course. It's true. (laughs) I know. I know. It's hard to believe. Uh, But it is uh, found at In the Q, Q Q-U-E-U-E, spelled out, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. And there you can post any of the postings that I just mentioned. Or you can uh, view all the supplemental materials that we have. If you like the page, then it... Uh, our posts will start to show up in your news feed. Uh, it's a great way to stay current with our podcast, and we recommend that you do that. Additionally, you can uh, find us on Twitter at, at ITQ Podcast and engage us in conversation there. We would love to uh, have your comments and your, your conversation uh, on that medium as well. And finally, you can find us on iTunes by searching for In the Queue, Q U E U E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. And there you can subscribe to our podcast and just get every single episode of it delivered straight to you. Indeed. Indeed. That is, that's the summary. So before we, before I give you kind of a brief rundown of the plot of this film, Emily, why don't you tell us why it is that you recommended that we watch Harry and the Hendersons? Um, I guess that I just watched it a lot when I was a kid mm-hmm. uh, with my brother and we enjoyed it, and I hadn't seen it in a while, and I wanted Philip to see it, and he refused, huh. so I requested refused. it. <laughs> Ooh. We needed a listener's choice for this week's episode. 
And, and I said I would do it if we could do Harry and the Hendersons. So I reluctantly agreed to this proposition. No, I I had never seen Harry and the Hendersons, and Emily and I are intertwined. Um, so that's how I ended up watching it. Well, great. That's as good a reason as any, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I'm glad that another person in the world could be exposed to this classic yeah. <laughs> 80s wow, comedy. What a discussion to have. <laughs> oh, it's going to be fun. <laughs> uh, so the film itself concerns the Henderson family. Uh, the patriarch of that family is George Henderson, played by John Lithgow. Uh, he has a wife and two children, one daughter, one son. Uh, and we open and they're on a camping trip and he has taken his son hunting. They've killed a rabbit. And he clearly is a person who lives in sort of the the hunting culture, right? Mm-hmm. He likes guns. He goes trophy hunting. He does all these kinds of Not the typical John Lithgow character, I would say. Oh, not at all. But I would say that this is also a, a not thinly veiled message film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that if he if he was signing on, you know, if he John Lithgow, the actor, was had any compunctions about it, they were probably assuaged by the ultimate message of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, they're on their way back home when they run into something in the road. That something turns out to be a Sasquatch, which they take home with them because they think it's dead. They think they'll be able to sell it to science or to tablets or whoever they'll make a lot of money it'll be it's an important discovery uh, but once they get him home they realize that he is not in fact dead mm. uh, and he is also not in fact the horrible monster that he's been made out to be and he is instead gentle and friendly and loving and kind and they grow to love him very dearly it happens so and quickly it happens very quickly and uh, in the meantime uh, a would-be Sasquatch believer uh, and a uh, hunter, I guess. Played by uh, David Suchet, who plays Poirot in the PBS uh, yes. Hercule Poirot films. Yes, he does. Uh, and, of course, the this Sasquatch would-be believer is played by Don Amici. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, he has hired this hunter to hunt down the Sasquatch and ultimately to have it as a trophy, uh, it seems. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and their paths cross as the, the, good way to put Hender- it. the Hendersons decide that they want to return Harry, as they've named him, to the wild so that he can go back to his environment and not be a Sasquatch in the city. Uh, this takes place in Seattle, and uh, and Lafleur, the hunter, is hunting him the entire time. It doesn't rain once at all in this movie. How can this take place in Seattle? I don't get it. Since don't don't the residents of Seattle basically say that it's just dreary all the time, and it's not that it's always raining; it's just that it's always overcast. Not once, though. Not one day is there ever any precipitation of any kind. Is that true? I guess it is. I was saying yeah. to Emily as we were watching this film. Why did they just make it set in L.A.? Because then it would take too long to yeah, get to okay. Mount Rainier. That's the reason why. They had to go to Mount Rainier to find Bigfoot. And I'm thinking, well, 
Are most Bigfoot sightings centered around Mount Rainier? I mean, is it possible to find him in some other location? In the Redwoods? I I don't know. I think it it just, if it was set in L.A., no matter where you would go, it would be hard to find a Bigfoot. Well, L.A. LA is is on the West Coast. They could could live in L.A. and they could take a day trip up to the Pacific Northwest and then find him there. Um, Well, sure. it It looked like most of these locations were... Not in Seattle. Sound stages? <laughs> well, quite possibly. <laughs> my only, well, my, I'm just going to go ahead and come out of the gate and say it. Do it, my do it. I want to hear it. My sort of overarching uh, feelings about this movie is that it just seems like, you know, as soon as Amblin Entertainment comes up at the beginning of the credits, we know this is a Steven Spielberg venture, and this is a movie that's kind of trying to capitalize on the popularity of E.T. And it, it sort of takes a similar sort of point of view, except only sure, this time sure. instead of an alien, it's a friendly Bigfoot from Mount Rainier who touches, so much. Who touches the families, touches their hearts. and um, So much cynicism. It's <laughs> dripping. Dripping, it's just dripping all over me. I can't help it, and I, I thought that it was just kind of a kind of a dumb movie, really. Oh. <laughs> well, here's the thing: I can understand where you're coming from, but I can't agree with you. Uh huh. <laughs> this may be largely in part due to the fact that I grew up with this film, and, and I, I did not watched it so many times. Yeah, yeah, but I I still find it to be entertaining. I did. A lot of the things that were hilariously funny when I was eight, nine, ten years old are now a little bit less so. Uh, some of the gags, yeah, I don't happens. think. Yeah, well, so I mean, some movies. I, I watch the Pink Panther movies, and they're just as funny now as they were when I was ten. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Uh, but this this film, I think, you know, it it is it is of its time and place. You know, it is a 1987 family comedy. Right. And it feels like it. And if you sort of have a sense of all of the attendant tropes and conventions that come along with that statement, then you pretty much already know what the movie is. If you haven't seen it, (laughs) I guess I could say that this movie didn't really surprise me in any way. It was kind of what I expected Harry and Henderson's to, to be, um, Mm -hmm. granted it's, it's made with some skill. It, I feel yeah. like what it tries to do, it f- pretty much succeeds at. Mm-hmm. Or, or it accomplishes. Um, I guess the only, the only thing that it didn't succeed in for me was the uh, <laughs> being as emotionally moving as it seems to be for other people. Other people from our generation, Andrew, who I've talked to about this movie... Um, a lot of them say that they ask if I cried at the end, which I did not. Yeah. But um, but I can definitely see, you know, why <laughs> if you really if you really kind of fall in love with Harry, then it it makes it easier to sort of I guess be sad when he spoiler alert has to eventually go back to his home and leave the Hendersons. Well, Emily, let me ask you, returning to this film for the first time in a long time, it sounds mm-hmm. like, 
how did you how did it hit you this time around? I got a little teary eyed at the end. And I thought that the jokes a lot of the jokes were still kind of funny. I mean, I was laughing out loud. I mean, maybe because they were so corny and I like corny jokes. <laughs> but <laughs> um I mean, yeah, there were a lot of parts story-wise that were dumb. Um, <laughs> but, um, and, and if I didn't have the nostalgia connection, then I, if I were seeing it for the first time, I may not, I, maybe I wouldn't find it heartwarming at the end, but well, I, I found I found there yeah there were a few things that in watching it this time. For instance, when they start to try and when John Lithgow George Henderson goes out into the uh, streets trying to find Harry, oh, yeah. and then he does the Bigfoot call the first time. <laughs> it it suddenly struck me that like there had been no setup for that. There was no reason like how would he know what a Bigfoot mm. call sounds like? And it had already. As a child, I had always just been like, yeah, of course, yeah, duh, it's a Bigfoot call. I get it. <laughs> but this time I was watching it and I was like, wait, why, how does he know? What? I don't understand. He's just going, ooh, <laughs> you know? Yes, the pain of maturation is something we all feel. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> this, oof. You're, just, you're just laying it on thick this time, though. <laughs> Um, um, it, well, it, actually, it's interesting to think of this film as an Oscar-winning film, but it is. It and is. I will say that the makeup for Harry was amazing. Well, and here, and actually, I truthfully, I think that this is where the heart of this film is, and this is why people get emotional watching this film. I think that the makeup for Harry is not only amazing; I think that it is transcendently expressive. Oh, yeah. Like, it's it's actually kind of astonishing how wonderfully expressive Harry's face is. Yeah. And... Um, in this film. Originally, he was supposed to have contact lenses, but then the director realized that the actor playing Harry, whose name is Kevin Peter Hall, was so mm-hmm. expressive with his eyes that he left the, the lenses out. I also want to mention that Kevin Peter Hall is actually the uncle I later learned of Jamie Hall, who is one of our former classmates at School of the Arts in Winston-Salem, and oh, wow. who has since taken up gigs playing roles that his uncle played, such as the Predator. Yeah. And, uh, and so they're both similarly very tall men, you know, good build. Give very physical performances. Yeah, and, and I was thinking, if Harry and the Hendersons were remade today... They would probably rely much more heavily on CGI than just a man yeah. in a suit. Like in the facial? Yeah, especially in the facial. facial. Construction. Yeah. Digitizing all of that. So much less heart. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, I, I would agree with that. There's more heart to it than, than just, you know, on a computer. Well, and I think that that, that heart, that, that kind of tangible uh, expressiveness, you know, I mean, you, you feel like you can reach out and, and touch his face and it would it would move naturally under your your hand you know and that that natural expressiveness is what makes it so emotional because i think that his i mean that this the subtlety of expression in some of these scenes i mean the uh 
there's a moment when uh, George has hidden all of his trophies, all of his animal trophies, in a closet because Harry had gotten very upset when he saw mm-hmm. these sort of dead animals around the house and he had gone and buried them in the backyard, which is a sweet and touching gesture for him to do. And there's this moment when they open the uh, the, the young son opens the closet door and all of these trophies spill out. And Harry is so sort of shocked and betrayed and sort of doesn't know what to, and all of this is in his face. All of these feelings are right there in his face. Yeah. And you're thinking to yourself, this is a big sort of costumed man. How can, how can this be this expressive? But it, I think that that's, I think that that's the heart of why people love it. Why they, uh, why they cry at the end. Why I think, they yeah, people get involved. People love it because they love Harry and it makes sense to me that the, the actor portraying Harry should deserve some of the credit as well. Apart from oh, just absolutely. The, apart from just the makeup, I think Kevin Peter Hall he is performing under all that stuff, he, and 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 performing an incredible not just with his face, which is what we've been talking about, mm-hmm. but with his entire body. I mean, he really performs this with his whole body, and it's really it's extraordinary. I think. Yeah, so I can understand why this movie would hold a lot of sentimental value for somebody. Um, but for somebody who's just coming into it for the first time as a jaded adult, mm. um, <laughs> it may not quite seem as as magical. But um, Emily, I was wondering if you could share some of some of your opinions about what were the strongest points of the film. If there were any scenes that stand out as being the best or the funniest, or, or things that you that are you know kind of reasons why you really love Harry and the Hendersons. Well, I was just thinking of it's the same I guess, scene where the son pulls the closet open looking for the camera, but the um, Mr. Woodwright, mm-hmm. is that? Uh, Woodruff? Woodruff, yeah. Uh, yeah. He is talking about not believing in, in, in Bigfoot, and he has stopped believing I guess and and Harry is right behind him and everyone is laughing yeah. and then he turns around and he's and he's so happy so he's like yahoo <laughs> something like that yeah and it's yeah. so silly to think of, like and nobody's scared of Harry which I guess if you look at his face he looks so goofy and well except for every other bystander yeah every person who's not already in love with Bigfoot is scared of him yes yeah um and kind of a side note, I was thinking about this too. It seems that every female character wears curling uh, hair curlers to bed. Interesting. I know. I know. <laughs> no, that's interesting. I, I think that's like cinematic shorthand for uh, domestic. Yeah. Right? Like having a domestic life. Mm. Um, and in 1987, of course, right. that was not as sort of uncommon as you might find it today. I do want to single out some of the performances. Um, John yeah. Lithgow is really good. He's good in this. He's really good in mm-hmm. most everything I've seen him. But Melinda Dillon really understands what movie she's in <laughs> uh, yes. as the mother yes. of the family. She really does yes. know that um, she needs to be exasperated. She needs to be, um, you know, not at not thinking intellectually no. 
She needs. She's not. To, she's not to be at a distance in this film. She is meant but, to be fully into the the situation. Yeah, but it, but she never loses uh, like a sense of warmth and mm-hmm. uh, friendliness. You know, she she doesn't seem uh, even when she's frightened. She's still like a very warm presence on screen. Yeah, and I, it was. I was glad to see her in this because I haven't seen her in nearly anything other than Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And she was in A Christmas Story, wasn't she? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I haven't seen her in a lot of films, but I think maybe she was also a connection to Spielberg's past because of Close Encounters. Close Encounters, yeah, of course. Of course. Um, and when she turns in a great performance as well. I mean, she turns in a great performance in all of those movies mm-hmm. that we just mentioned. Um, yeah, yeah. It's you know it's a fun movie. It's a trifle, uh-huh. I would say. Um, it's certainly not a deep film. I uh, I think that it should be mentioned that that earlier sort of message that I was talking about. The, this was common, in, especially with a lot of films that were directed at families or at children in the eighties. Mm-hmm. But this film has a very clear message, I think, and that is a message of conservationism a message of living with nature a sort of anti-gun message an anti-destruction message absolutely um and it lays it on pretty thick (laughs) uh and and i was a lot more aware of that watching this now Mm -hmm. but i was also struck by how genuine it was and how genuinely sort of friendly and and humanist this film was um despite the fact that it's a little heavy-handed in its in its agenda Mm -hmm. yeah no no disagreement there i really do feel like it it is sort of um pro animal pro nature uh, respecting respecting the nature even if it is something that could be exploited by people anti-gun anti-gun we should still you know leave it for what it is um and it's also interesting to think that four years later, Harry and the Hendersons spawned a short-lived TV series uh, from yes. 1991 to 1993, um, which uh, I'm looking at the graphic right now, and it looks like it's got the classic Harry um, animatronic or, or costume with a, with a new family, different family. Mm-hmm. And um, it actually has... Just a slightly worse rating than the film itself. Um, it said that the TV series is at 5.5 out of 10. The movie's at 5.9 out of 10. But um, mm-hmm. it's interesting that uh, so much skill and talent and craft went into making Harry the animal. Um, whereas I felt like I just felt like the rest of the the screenwriting was kind of, I don't know, not quite up to the same level. Um, but as for the creature itself, it's it's amazingly convincing. It's it's mm-hmm. and it, it kind of that to me is probably the most Spielbergian thing about the film, because it's yeah. about it 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 be, with the creature, it reignites in you the feeling of childlike wonder. That is all about, you know, 
that part of Spielberg's career, and that's what what made him rich and and made him a whole brand, was that sense of childlike wonder. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I mean, it wasn't until Schindler's List that that sort of <laughs> wasn't the case anymore. Even though he had made some very serious films before, like The Color Purple. Uh huh. Um, you know, it just it, this was certainly what he was known for. Absolutely, and was most respected for. Um. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it does have that sense of you know, it's 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 like so many films. I'm looking on on IMDB, there's the people who liked this also liked section. Uh-huh. And there's like Batteries Not Included, Short Circuit, right. Flight of the Navigator, Daryl. Like these are all movies that are in that same kind of vein and it's kind of you know, they're all fun. They're all fun movies from the 80s do they hold up particularly well do they seem dated sure well okay i'm <laughs> like, if you look at these movies you've got as you mentioned short circuit batteries not included flight of the navigator those three films are all movies that i watched as a child and liked quite a bit but oh, yeah. if i were to see them now sure i mean that's that's what happens with aging you know it's like do they hold up well we look for different things when we watch movies now than we did when we were eight, nine years old. Some films, I mean, some films are just as magical now as they were then. I mean, I can watch Labyrinth until the end of time and it's never going to get old for me. Right. Well, that's a good pick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think. I, I, I remember being a kid and liking like Hitchcock movies a lot. And, sure. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I mean, Psycho is a movie that I watched when I was 12 years old. I don't think I could have watched Psycho when I was 12 years old. Yeah. Did you watch any grown-up movies when you were a kid? Um, mostly kids' movies. Mostly kids' movies. I mean, we watched like yeah. Mrs. Doubtfire, which is not necessarily an adult movie. I still haven't seen that actually. I would get oh, wow. I would get I would get these um, bootleg tapes. Me and my brother would get these bootleg tapes from our aunt, uh, like every holiday. And it would be, she would just tape stuff off of cable. So she had HBO. We didn't. We just had network TV. And so she would send us these tapes, and it would be a total mishmash of things. Mm-hmm. So like on the same tape with like, I don't know, the Muppets Take Manhattan or something would be Children of a Lesser God. Oh wow! <laughs> or something that like that. That is awesome. I saw that when I was a kid too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. I got a bootleg tape from uh, my family friend, and I remember it had the Shaggy DA. Which was uh, a Disney one of the film. Shaggy Dog films, yeah, like yeah. from the seventies with Dean Jones. It had Gus, which was a Disney live-action movie from uh-huh. the seventies about a mule that becomes a kicker on a football team. Yep, yep. And then there was Hugo the Hippo, which was a very bizarre psychedelic, like drug-infused animated film from the seventies about an African boy and his friend Hippo, who is being hunted by an evil man and it was full of these kinds of very bizarre drug-induced psychedelic dream sequences they were actually very disturbing for a child but yeah but don't get me wrong i actually it's not bad i don't know i think i think it's good for kids to be disturbed by movies sometimes Mm -hmm. i really do and and that's something that i feel like most people are too concerned about these days they want kids movies to be too nice all the time and they're they don't want to be on pc and they don't want to they don't want to deal with very adult issues like death but those are 
those are everybody issues. Those are things that kids need to learn how to deal and, with. And, and the truth is, learning about death through a movie is kind of the easiest way to learn about death. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I saw true. The Sixth Sense in the, I think when I was in the fifth grade, and I don't think I slept for a week. Wow. I was so disturbed. So. Well, that, sure. That illustrates, on the kid. that illustrates the uh, age gap between but you and us. My well, <laughs> I was nineteen. Okay. Um, well, on this on this point, though, I think that one of the things that I struck me as interesting and something that I didn't remember at all in any way is that this is a PG film. This film is right. just plain old PG. And the number of times that they use some pretty heavy-duty swear words in it is... I mean, there are at least, like, four or five times in this film that they said the word shit. Yeah. And I I was like, yes! Yes, this was the 80s, man. I it. (laughs) The the movie... I remember the movie Jabberwocky, which is... uh, I've seen it. ...was made by some of the Pythons. Uh, That film is rated PG as well. And it has full frontal nudity in it. And some graphic violence, too, doesn't it? And some very graphic violence. Yeah. And I, you know, honestly, you know, once PG-13 became synonymous with, like, totally neutered and shorn of anything racy, I don't even know why PG exists anymore. Yeah. How many films come out that are rated PG? I feel like a lot of them are animated films, like Pixar movies and... Most of those are G, though. Well, I feel like some of them want to appeal to, to the parents of the kids that they're also appealing to. Sure, sure. You know, like a lot of Pixar movies, the best ones also you know appeal to adults, like Inside Out did. Of course, of course. Um, if it's if there's smoking, is that rated PG or PG thirteen now? I think that's I think anymore that's PG thirteen, and there's a there's a movement to make it. So that if there's smoking at all in a film, it should automatically be rated R or NC-17 or something like that. Yeah, that makes Which, a lot of sense. No, no, it does not. <laughs> uh, yeah, but Harry and the Hendersons, I mean, when it comes down to it, it was it's enjoyable for me. Uh, I think primarily for nostalgia's sake. Uh, I think it's a curiosity for people who are interested in that era of, you know, family filmmaking and that kind of Amblin mm-hmm. model. I think it's interesting for anybody who enjoys great creature work and great physical performances by the actors who are inhabiting said creature right? Uh, and really creating that performance. And, uh, and it's fun to watch John Lithgow howl like a Sasquatch. <laughs> he is really good. I mean, he like, a lot of times in this movie, he'll it'll be like a reaction shot of him where he looks at something normal, and then he looks at Sasquatch, and then his yep. face like, oh, or like it like it yeah. does like a take, it does like a uh, kind of like a it just transforms really quickly, and so he's he really understood you know what he needed to do to pull this mm-hmm. off. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's you know if I was a kid, I probably would have liked it more than I was would have now as a 36 year old old man yes um, i would say so. <laughs> but uh but i'm so glad to have seen it because you know i feel like it's it's it was made during a time 
when I was young and really getting interested in movies for the first time. And so it was, it's in a way it's part of my background as a young American person. Sure. So it's good to have actually seen it and then, and, uh, and participated in this podcast. (laughs) Emily, what's, what's your summary? How do you feel about it now? So many years later? Um, it was enjoyable for me. I don't know if it holds up. Yeah, um, yeah, but I I still thought it was amusing and it was fun to look at it as an adult. Um, I I still thought the jokes were kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> at least Harry's facial expressions. Yeah, there's some good physical comedy in the uh, in the film as well. Irene, so. Irene, of course, Irene, Irene Lainey Kazan. Who is yeah, actually coming yeah. back into cinema soon for the sequel to my Big Fat Greek Wedding? That's true. That's true. Should be interesting. Well, uh, thank you so much, Emily, for suggesting this, and thanks for coming on the program to talk with us about it. Oh yes, thank you for having me again. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you could convince Phil to uh, watch Harry and the Hendersons <laughs> through this. Damn it this all to hell! <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so. Uh, that's our podcast for Harry and the Hendersons. Uh, for all of you listeners out there, loyal listeners, we will be doing our next episode on Batman v Superman. <laughs> Dawn of Justice. That's right. You got to get that subtitle in there. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's tipping its hand. It's saying we are building the Justice League franchise with this movie. We want to re- repeat the success of Marvel. Mm-hmm. Please. Let us do that. Yeah. Wonder Woman's in it. Yeah. It's true. It's true. So we'll see how that is when it comes out this weekend. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll catch you next time.